welcome to the minefield and isn't it about time, Scott, that we got the welcome we deserved at the start <laughs> of the show. Well, Lee Darling is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And Scott, uh, we are here at the Womadelaide Festival and I have to confess to being a little bit nervous because people are actually watching, which is not the way this show normally goes. No. And actually most of what happens on our show would be utterly defensible if you were aware that there were people actually observing what was going on. Um, I should point out that our wonderful producer, Sinead, is not here, who's normally the person who tells us off. But see, her watching... Well, Lena and I both have mother complexes, by yeah, the way, and so she's perfect. Um, but Sinead watching doesn't really count because she's just always grumpy with us anyway. And on this occasion, we're dealing with people who've chosen to be here, so they may not even be grumpy. Scott, do you share... Any of my anxieties? Look, I, 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 I do. You should also know that you being here shatters one of the illusions that both Walid and I live with, and that's that whenever we're talking, there's our producer Sinead listening and Walid's mum. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. The only way we can carry on the conversation is believing that nobody is actually listening, so the fact that you're here is... Um, it is wonderful to have every Mindfield listener in the world gathered <laughs> in the one room, though. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, so I suppose we should lay, um, we should lay the topic out. I think this is an interesting, I mean, normally there's an element of surprise. This is written on the program, there's no it's surprise. Awesome. Is it behind us? It's behind um, us In fact, too. is there a, oh my God, there's a yeah. slide above us that tells you what the topic is. So presumably you can read and you know what it is. But for the benefit of the radio audience, Scott, mm. how do you want to set this up? Acknowledging that this is not an entirely new topic no, it's not. for the minefield. No. Uh, if you've been listening to The Minefield for a while, you'll know we've tried this topic before. And I do say, when I say try, there were five different voices on that particular program. We had a little insert from an interview that I did with a very, very well-known political theorist at Cambridge University. Uh, we had another guest, we had that guest graduate student, and then we had the two of us. And there's nothing wrong with that conversation. The New York Times reported on that conversation. I thought it was a really, really good one. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the minefield moving to an hour-long format, I think both of our thinking has, I think it's deepened. That's, that's my sense. I suspect yours might have changed, but I'm going to, I'm, <laughs> sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, waiting. Can I just, I'm going to have a word to you. It's good having an audience. I can talk to them. Um, <laughs> did you pick that up? My, my thinking, Scott, may have deepened. Well, yours may have changed. <laughs> I'm not saying you're flighty or inconsistent or superficial. Just increasingly shallow. What I'm saying is I think my original conviction that I took into that original conversation, yep. I think I've become more convinced of the importance of it. They're not necessarily along the same lines. Okay. We actually haven't discussed this since we did that show, so I simply True. don't know what's going on with you. Which is true of most minefield shows. We have no it's idea true. what the other thinks. So, that's actually true. That the number true. of times we start the show and have no idea where we're going. The real secret. Or what the other person thinks. It's the real secret that we will only admit because you're here is that often uh, we don't know what we think about the topic until we start. Mm, it's so true. Anything could happen. Yeah. Anything could happen, folks. So, so we're, we're doing this not out of imaginative laziness. We couldn't think of anything better to discuss. But because we really do think this is an important topic. And at this festival, with the overarching concern for the care of our common home being such a pervasive theme that runs through everything we discuss, we thought this particularly would be an especially important topic. Though, maybe for reasons that 
we will try to dissuade you out of. That's anyway. Should children be given the vote? Thank you. This is so interesting. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> because what's nice about the topic is that anybody you say it to has a visceral, spontaneous reaction. It's either, why the hell not? Or it's, can you think of anything worse than a whole lot of grubby 11 and 12 year olds lining up on, you know, lining up for their sausage, their democracy sausage. Um, it's a really complex issue because the more you press it, the more it gets to the heart of what it is you think a democracy is, the more it gets to the heart of what are the characters, the characteristics, the qualities, dare I say the virtues that we want to enculturate, that we want to cultivate in citizens within a democracy. It goes to the heart of what you think the end of democracy is, not in the sense of democracy slamming shut, but what common goal, what's the construction of the pursuit, or the aspiration towards a common world? Uh, what is it that you think democracy is pursuing? So simply trying to get to the heart of this one issue, it ends up uncovering so many things that we either have stopped thinking about or that we presume that we know the answer to. It also gets to the heart of what we think we mean when we talk about democratic competence. What do you need? in order to be able to participate in a democracy? What is the threshold? And then there's the follow-up question, which is, at what point do you cease being a member of an operative democratic community? At what point do you then step past the threshold? So I'm, I'm just curious, before we... I, 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 sorry, can I pull you up there? Yeah. Why, the, the use of the word cease I found very odd mm. in that sentence, because one of the characteristics of democracy and the qualifications that are necessary for participation in, it, in the form of voting. Um, one of the things about that is that it doesn't cease, actually. So this is David Runciman's... It's not entirely true. Well, is, isn't it? Not here, it's not. So give me examples. Well, you would know that in the United States, for instance, felons yeah. can't participate. Yes, but in Australia, they specifically can. They specifically can, but those who... According to the Commonwealth Electoral Act, yes. section, I'm not looking at notes, nothing up my, section 93, yep. subsection 8A. Mm. <laughs> hang on, um, hang on, before you applaud, I think we should reverse this. How about you shout out a section of any act? <laughs> no, that's, that's all I got. And then it's let's written see. just beneath my... <laughs> anyway, tell us about section 93. Uh, those, who are, those who are of unsound mind, and those who neither understand nor appreciate the purpose and significance of voting enrollment and of voting cannot participate in the voting process. Yeah, but the difference I would... In other words, oh, sorry, go on. one can actually reach a point according to the Electoral Act. One can reach a point, let's say, at the other end of life. Or if someone had, say, severe dementia. Yeah. At which point they no longer qualify for the electoral roll. Okay. I, I feel like that's, uh, maybe this is just a pointless technical point, but I, I, I feel like that's more suspension than cessation. Because you could fit that criteria, for example, while you're in your mid-30s. Mm, that's true. As a result of some kind of mental infirmity. Um, and then you move through that and then you reattain mm. the rights of voting. The, re the reason I picked up the cessation point, and I don't, I don't want to make a big yeah. thing of it, but is that we should, be, we should come clean. This whole topic is derived from 
an argument that the, um, the great political scientist David Runciman made, where he argued that children of the age of six and up should be given the right to vote. And do you, do you want to say why? Why six? Uh, no, we'll get to that, I oh. think. Um, but one of the points that he made, which was really about the argument of extending the franchise, is that if you are going to say children shouldn't get the right to vote because they are not, I don't know, intellectually competent to do that, they don't meet a necessary intellectual standard for participation in democracy in the form of voting, um, we need to acknowledge that there is no end point to that. There is no secession point. We don't say there are people at the other end of life who lose that merely by virtue of having reached an age mm. that mm. we determine they're not capable of that. Right. You could argue we do that perhaps with high court judges and yeah. the forced retirement of them, but you don't do that with voting. You don't say, well, we know that X percentage of 85-year-olds, for example, um, simply are not dialed into reality enough and so we're going to cut the vote off for everybody. You retain exceptional cases like the ones you're talking about mm. where an individual person reaches a certain point um, or just becomes incapacitated for some reason. But cessation, part of his argument is that cessation is something that doesn't happen. It would be, it would be unthinkable in a healthy democratic culture for someone to reach a certain age at which point the vote is taken off them. Yes, yeah. you would never do that. Yeah, that's right. right. And rightly so. Right. Now, as I recall, the last time we did this topic, uh, and so, sorry, everyone, Scott and I have this very rock-solid understanding that I remember nothing that we've done, and Scott remembers every word that has been uttered on a show. Um, but my vague recollection, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we kind of more or less agreed that expanding the franchise to children would be a good idea, mm. but that six was probably pushing it a bit far, mm. and that maybe 12 or something in that region would be about right. Did mm. I remember that broadly? Pretty much. Correctly? Which leads us, I think, to... I've changed my mind on that. But okay, that's interesting. So but that leads us to the point that I think Runciman makes about why six. Mm. Um, and we did talk a lot about this, and I, I remember you expressing admiration for this observation at the very least, which is that six is really the commencement of your educational life in a formal educational sense. So that's when you go off to primary school. Um, and so there seems to be something of a meaningful convergence mm. if you tie the beginning of your civic life to the beginning of your educational, educational life. And yeah. so six is a really good time to do that. I don't even remember why we balked at six at the time and we decided 12 was okay, because having thought more about Runciman's argument, there really is no reason to stop at 12. In fact, he, he makes an argument that 12 would be a very bad, um, not, not specifically 12, mm. but, but the point of extending it to kids is not to extend it a little bit, but to extend it a lot, yeah. um, and for reasons that we can go into. But before we go into all that, I'm interested in, what, do you remember why we said we were interested in 12? We just couldn't quite imagine there being sufficient either grasp of issues uh, or there was concern. I mean, we, there was an ameliorating, there was something additional that I do want to pick up on in, okay. in just a moment. But there was some concern about the possibility of, say, very, very early primary school being essentially becoming campaign grounds. Mm. So high school's fine for that? Quite possibly. So, but you know what's interesting about that? And I feel like we might have There's done There's so many huge issues here. We've so already many. skipped over Yeah, them. and we do need to go back and, and pick them up. But what's interesting about that is there's a fascinating point that Runciman makes, which is that when politics and democratic politics is left to the business of adults, 
what you get is what we've got, which is people standing up, grandstanding, screaming at each other, just showing how full on the rough and tumble of politics actually is. And the debate is rarely enlightening in that way, certainly in more popular forums. And then he posits this, I think, fantastic um, thought experiment, which is imagine the policy debate that would occur if a set of politicians, say, wanted to have this argument, but they were forced to be having it in front of six and seven-year-olds. What would the tone of that mm. debate be? How would they go about doing it? Would it be about body slamming their opponent into submission so that enough people stand up and go, yeah, that they're going to end up voting for that position? Do kids do protest voting? I don't, I mean, I don't know. But it's a really interesting thought experiment, right? If, if we, even just a, as individual people, we've probably all transgressed in this way where we've ended up in a heated argument with someone. If suddenly we're having that for the benefit of a, a, a mediator or an arbitrator or someone who would rule on it, who happened to be seven, we would probably conduct ourselves in a markedly different way. And I think what Runciman's saying is a far more productive way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you do with that, because yeah. that's, that's kind of counter to what the point you were just making about the idea of making primary schools um, campaign grounds. Yeah. yeah. So let's just think for a moment about some of the objections. Okay. Because now, do you know what? A, cu a couple of the objections actually reveal some very important assumptions. I think that we need carrying forward. Okay. So number one is denying the vote to children presumes that children are politically incompetent, that they don't have a necessary grasp of issues, that they're not able to weigh up, for instance, a variety of perspectives independent from the supervening uh, supervision of their parents. Another objection is that children are just going to do what their parents tell them to do. So in other words, this is simply effectively doubling, tripling, quadrupling the vote that's available to families of a particular persuasion. Now just on that point, the first thing I want to say is, so what, my kids are going to do exactly what I tell them to do? I, of all of the arguments against extending the vote, I find that the most impossible. Do, do, you, do you think it's impossible though when you're talking about six-year-olds? Okay. So I understand they reach a point where everything you say is wrong. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but there is a point before that, however brief it might be, where everything you say is right. Yeah. This is why I actually have a very, very sophisticated proposal. Wow. I, I, I like that you're such a fan of your proposal. I am a big fan of my proposal. <laughs> because there's no point having this argument mm. if it doesn't have bipartisan support. It would take an amendment to the Commonwealth Electoral Act. Yeah. If it benefits one side of politics or the other, it's never going to get up. Mm. And that's why one of the other reasons why a lot of people do want to extend the vote to children is in a system of compulsory voting, that massively expands the size of the electorate. So 20% of Australians' population is below the age of 18. Let's just say that we're not going to give the vote to all of those below the age of 18. So let's just say that we're simply expanding the voting body by 15%. That is a huge expansion of the Australian electorate. So the hope is if we bring more young people in, young people are going to be more progressive voters, Young people are going to be more future-oriented voters. 
Uh, young people are going to be voters who are more concerned about the environment, the long-term care of our common home. And what that's then going to do is it's going to counterbalance the disproportionate influence that older people have with the Australian society. The median age, the median voting age in the Australian society is much higher than a lot of comparable democracies. In India, for instance, uh, just shy of 30% of the population are below the age of 18, the much lower median age. Australia has a proportionally much higher median age. And so bringing so many young, presumably progressive, presumably green voters in towards the end of the, the bottom end of the electoral spectrum, that's going to counterbalance, because all politicians really have to do now is to sell their wares to those who are paying the most attention, those who are going to be most active and who are going to be most sort of locked in to a particular voting preference. Now, what I find spurious about that... About what? About that argument? About that entire argument. Yep. If anything about this proposal of extending the franchise to children, if anything about this is seen to benefit or seems to benefit one side of politics or another, it's never going to happen. But also, it shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. That's exactly I right. I think that's a more important point, actually. Absolutely right. That was my next point. So, yeah. So, I think, I think what... Well, it's a, it's a very sophisticated one. It's a very sophisticated <laughs> um, point. I, I think it's important... So, so, and Runciman does make this argument that the great thing about going from 18 to 6 is that no one can predict the outcome. You don't know what six-year-olds are going to do with but their But that's vote. actually what I hate about his argument. Really? Yeah. You just went from making a sophisticated argument to no, a poor no, no. one, Scott. The, 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 the idea that democracy has become stale, it's become uninteresting, it's become pre uh, uh, predictable, and it favours too much older voters rather than younger, and therefore, let's just shake things up no, no, and no, see what happens. I don't no, think that's That is actually part of his argument, okay, though. It yeah, is. It actually that's is. That's not how I took it. I, I took it as... He's saying, you can't do a thing like go from 18 to 16. Yeah, that's Because what you're doing right. there is you're taking basically 18-year-olds before they're 18 mm. with a set of um, political convictions that are broadly predictable mm. and therefore have easily predictable partisan consequences. What you have to do is extend it so far that you can't predict what's going to come right. out of it. That's true. Because then what you are doing is making a methodological change that is designed to remedy some kind of problem in democracy. In this case, the over-representation or the over-empowerment of a demographic that mm. is old. Mm. And not because they're old, but because that has grown so substantially over time that it now has a disproportionate influence on democratic yep. politics compared to the way democratic politics But this is my problem. Extending the vote can never be to fix another problem. Okay. Extending the vote to children can never be about uh, uh, remedying the countervailing, or countervailing the influence of older voters. It has to be a matter of principle about who it is that we include within a political community. It has to be a matter of equality. It can't simply be a matter of this group of people has too much power, therefore we need to do something to counterbalance that. I, d I don't think it's about... Well, maybe it is that. Yeah. I, I was thinking, it's not so much you have too much power, let me figure out a way to take it off you. It's that the fact that you have too much power expresses a distortion. Mm. Right? Mm. And it's a distortion that perhaps didn't matter so much previously in democracies where, and these are figures Runciman gives, so they're probably British figures, um, the population over 65 used to be about 5%, now it's about 20%. Yeah, if you think true. about how significant a change that is, that's a very significant change. And so what suffers? Well, 
I think what we're learning about democracy is it's really no good at anything intergenerational. It's no good at house prices, fixing that sort of thing. Long-term policy. Climate change is obviously a confounding problem because the people who are most affected by climate change haven't been born yet. Um, and that is perhaps a limitation to this that I think we need to acknowledge, if not go into, which is actually the people who are most deeply unrepresented are the unborn, and there seems to be no democratic mechanism for fixing that. But at the very least, what you can do is, with the people who are there, you can come up with some kind of mechanism that will be more broadly representative of not just the people, but of the interests mm. that attach to those people. I think we've banged on enough without a guest. Can I no. mention very briefly no. my one little thing that we can then take into the... This is where I miss Sinead. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it. I'll leave it. You'll figure out a way to work it in. I, I will. Absolutely I'm sure I will. no doubt. I'll shoehorn it in. <laughs> my first question is to myself. Excellent. Scott, what were you going to say just before? <laughs> it wouldn't even be unexpected. Um, this is The Minefield, by the way. You can listen to the show as you might be doing right now on RN. You can also catch it live if you. Oh, no, you can't. It's already over. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, the guest we have today is the guest that we had the first time we tried this out. Uh, she's something else. If you're a long-time listener, I'm curious. How many of you listen to the Minefield semi-regularly? Oh, aren't you sweet? You're all are wonderful. Uh, Why are the rest of you here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you may well know what I mean when I, I'm conveying the highest praise that I have on our guest. She is an Aristotelian democratic proceduralist. Yeah. That's one for the kids out there. What more do you need to say? Uh, Lisa Hill, Professor of Politics from the University of Adelaide, please join me. Hi. Hi. I remembered why it was 12. If you're interested, why yeah. we got stuck on that number 12. It's because that's a stage in developmental psychology when people start being able to do abstract reasoning uh, pro-social reasoning, they can understand things like distributive justice. So it's, it's 12 or 13. Okay. Mm. Just in case you were wondering. Very nice. I should have just asked her at the start. <laughs> it's true. So, I'm not shoehorning anything in, but let me, just, let me just try this out. Like I said before, I have real issues with privileging a particular end and then wondering how can we modify, change, tweak mm. our democratic mechanisms in order mm. to achieve that end? Mm. It's like in the height of the Brexit debate, wanting to have another referendum. The presumption being mm. having another rep referendum was going to give us a different vote. Mm. Therefore, you're presuming the end in advance, mm. and you're establishing your calling a means to get you to that end. Democracy cannot work that way. If there's one thing that lies at the heart of the moral claim of democracy, what you might want to even call the conditions of democratic morality, it's that the end that we seek is discovered by the very means of getting there. Sure, you, you can't rig the outcome and you can't think too much about the outcome, but you can have as your goal improving the procedure for getting outcomes. And the problem now is that the procedure, elections, is failing us, and we're getting outcomes that the people find maladaptive. And we think it might be to do with the procedure itself being faulty and the, the inputs we're getting from the people that are supposed to be giving us those open-ended, undetermined results. Mm. So I think it's okay to say we want different outcomes. You can say, I want the outcome of having a vibrant democracy. 
in which it's incredibly inclusive, which is something we aim for all the time. That's not telic in any way. That's just saying, let's make the process inclusive. So I have to ask your follow-up to that, because I'm pretty sure I agree with everything you just said. Mm. Mm. But there is, a, there is an assumption in it where we might be wrong. Mm -hmm. So where you say democracy is producing all of these maladaptive outcomes, I think was the phrase mm -hmm. that you used, mm -hmm. that the people don't like. Yeah. Do we know that? It well, we well know that young people are very unhappy about... Yeah, okay. So, but that may <coughs> be that we now have sufficient polarisation in our society that any outcome would make a significant number of people mm. very unhappy. Mm. That's not the same as a maladaptive outcome that the people don't like. That's just our politics becoming more polarised and, and coarser. Unless you say it's a function of the lack of inclusiveness of the process. It's a maladaptive outcome insofar as it only has one or two perspectives being fed into it. But if we got more perspectives fit, in, fit into it, we might get an outcome that that was more desirable insofar as it was more representative. But are one or two perspectives fed into it? It seems to me lots of perspectives are fed into it. It's just that what happens inevitably, mm. and I, this isn't a criticism, this mm -hmm. is, it seems to me just unavoidable, mm. is that election campaigns and election campaigning get funneled down to one or two questions. Yep. so that the mind of the electorate can be focused. Mm. And the art of campaigning is to make those questions the ones that you want the electorate to mm. be thinking mm. about, right? Um, now, we can criticise that. I don't know that you can fix that, really. Mm. Um, you can do a few things, actually. Okay. For example, one thing that would change the whole landscape of that campaign conversation is caps on, f on campaign spending. You suddenly make it. Um, and uh, is Ravi Baltusas here? Hi, Ravi. He's one of my RAs, and he and Max Douglas have been working with me on disinformation. So that's the other thing we can do, mm. control the levels of disinformation. And you can do that without nicking democracy's artery, according to us. <laughs> and um, the other thing, though, we're working on now with Max, my other RA, is trying to model what would be the optimal or fair uh, spending cap. That way, you know, I was just in Hobart, and my sister told me that a particular politician had brought up every single billboard in Hobart except for four. So we're not getting those perspectives coming to, through, then the, and we're not having the conversation that represents people. The other problem is certain sectors of the population withdraw when the questions and the, and the topics aren't what they're interested in. Even in a compulsory regime, then politicians, as you've said, know who their customers are. That conversation stops. People don't hear it, they don't vote. Even in Australia, there's a huge voting gap between young and older voters, and that's, that's really something in a compulsory mm. voting regime, that you mm. get a gap like that of nearly 15 percentage points. Nearly the same gap that you get in voluntary systems. Mm. So it's having everyone in the conversation and then seeing what the conversation is, and it might not be what I want, it might not be the outcome that I want, but at least I can say we heard all the voices, and we can do some other things along the way as well to make sure those voices uh, can speak and be heard. So, so let me come back to the question I asked originally then. Is it maladaptive and the people are upset? Mm. Or are we just now a rancorous people that are determined to be upset? Right, yeah. With no matter what... I think we're we missing produce. something. 
Mm. I think we're just, I'm sorry, but no. I think in the way that you're framing the question, we're missing perhaps the most decisive shift that's taken place over the last two decades. So one of the objections that I mentioned before about the vote being extended to young people, young people just aren't sophisticated enough to mm. be able to wrestle mm. with, young people aren't political yet. They exist mm. in the position mm. of what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the neutrality of children. Mm. And so the risk of extending the vote as young as, let's say, six, mm. is to unnaturally make them partisan too early, mm. to politicize them too early. Mm. The response to that is, my God, are you saying that children aren't political? Mm. Are you saying that the children who have walked out of or boycotted their schools or who are organizing and protesting or are leading marches, are you saying they're not political? Now, well, they're, this, not, they're not Sikhs. Okay, but hang on. The point is, we're looking at the bifurcation of politics. So you have representative politics, voting, uh, political representation, in other words, the stuff that actually makes things happen, mm. the rooms in which decisions get made, mm. and then you've got political agitation, political engagement. You have very strong levels of opinion, very high levels mm. of emotion. The problem is our kids are getting increasingly political, maybe even politically engaged, mm. but they're not yet political participants. And so what that means is these political issues are the form in which political engagement takes place is there's the thing that I want mm. and then there's the goddamn enemies. And it reduces politics as such to be in a zero-sum game. Yeah, except... If it's the environment, yeah. it's... And, and most of our debates then that are referred to as political debates then become zero-sum arguments. So, so it's I, me and then it's I the enemy. I think enemies. this is an important observation, but there's a, there's a limit to it because what you're describing is true... I would argue as true, maybe even truer, for adults no. who do have the mechanism of political expression. The, the problem is, way. though, the problem is, is that high levels of political engagement is alongside of and it's coexistent with a collapse in what we might refer to as democratic faith. Faith in the capacity mm. of democracy to achieve ends that realise the right. possibilities it, which, of a common world. Which takes world. me exactly back to the question I was asking Lisa. Because if there's a collapse of democratic faith, mm. then it's not the outcomes, it's not the result, it's, it's not the policy that determines our sense of alienation from it, or at least the loser's mm -mm. sense of alienation from mm. it on any given issue or in any given mm. election. It's that there's something rotten at the core, or there's something rotten in us that makes us incapable now of looking at mm. our fellow citizens with whom we have profound disagreements but still mm. maintaining a kind of mm. democratic bond. Mm. All of these, I think, are profound diagnoses of the problems that afflict contemporary democracies mm. and mature democracies, you might say, mm. none of which I think are problems that giving the children the vote would address. Well, hang on, there's two things in mm. there. Mm. One was... Um, about responsiveness. People are disaffected and losing faith in democratic institution because of lack of government responsiveness. Right. In fact, we've lost our space, our, our high place on the anti-corruption index, mainly due to people having an Aristotelian conception of, um, of corruption, half-half. <laughs> um, 
which is it's not the corruption that we normally think of, but this very classical conception where the rulers rule in their own interests mm. rather than the interests of the people. People are sick and tired of seeing, the, for example, the planet go up in flames or being flooded. Nothing happens. And so government's unresponsive, then people withdraw. But then you get into this maladaptive um, cycle of uh, a self, a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Governments are no good, democracy is no good, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. That's what's happening. Um, the other thing, though, you raise another point that's very interesting, Waleed, which is that some people say, like John Keane or Mark Charrell, that a democracy is doomed to commit democide because it's got certain things going on in it. Free speech, uh, same what happened in Weimar Germany. A Nazi party or a populist party or an extremist party can wrest control and then get rid of democracy. Our obsession with free speech, which is great, and the lifeblood of democracy, can also lead to all this untrue speech, these lies that are very destructive to democracy, that, uh, that cause people to withdraw and cause people to believe things about the democratic process, for example, stolen elections. Of course you're going to lose faith if people at the highest level, even electoral commissioners in the states, are believing stolen elections, which I find quite comical since they can ran it. Mm. Uh, so they're like pointing at themselves. So there's really two things going on there. But when, I, when, when you're objecting to me saying maladaptive outcome, do you mean I'm unhappy with what democracy brings out at the other end? I, I don't do you know. think I mean that? I guess. I don't know. I guess that's what I'm, I was asking you. Because what I really mean is not particular things I would like to see, but the fact that it's unresponsive. If everyone want, wanted something terrible and democracy gave it to them, them, then it's working. That's what I meant by maladaptive right. in terms of people's expressed preferences. Yeah, so I guess that's the bit... I turn this over in my head all the time. I don't mm. have a conviction on it, mm. which is, I think, why I'm asking it. So you can sort my head out. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, I don't know how... I'm not that confident that I know what people actually want. All right. Because the only way... How do we discern that? Well, we might discern it via survey data. Mm. I trust that less and less when I factor in how people might engage with those surveys, right? And I know, you know, saying the things they think they should mm. say. Mm. Although you'd be familiar with all these problems, yep. and I'm sure you have very sophisticated methodologies to try to correct for them. I, I don't do. feel like we're in an age where that correction yeah, has been yeah. entirely successful. I wonder if the terrible truth about democracy is actually it is giving us what we want. It's just that what we want is not the stuff that we say we want when we're gathered in quite polite company mm. like this. And we say, what I really want is climate action, or you know, what I really mm. want is to solve the mm. housing crisis, mm. or whatever. Mm. Bottom line, maybe we don't actually want that. Well, hang when on. The costs are what do you mean by that? Let's say that people don't want climate. You think people are happy with the conflagration, the flood, or you're saying something like they want housing, public housing, but they don't want to pay for it. Yeah, no, it, it's always paired or, with cost, right? So yeah. This was probably Tony Abbott's great political insight, right? I remember, yeah. the, I remember the time when he became the opposition leader, I think it was. Mm -hmm. He rolled Malcolm Turnbull. Mm. And everyone assumed at that point, this is a hopeless opposition leader, yeah. terrible choice, I know. we'll never beat Kevin Wright, he's the most popular person in the history of the world, and he's just gonna roll forward with his climate change agenda mm. and destroy them. Yeah. And Tony Abbott looked at the polls and he read them in a way that was more subtle than all of his critics. 
which was everyone says they want climate action. Mm. No one has yet demonstrated that people are prepared to pay for it. Mm. And then that was the next 10 years of coalition policy mm. was effectively mm. built mm. on that. And it's been incredibly successful. Now, mm. there are distortionary mm. effects. Mm. Donations um, from fossil fuel industries, so mm. on, all mm. this sort of thing. Um, the way that our seats are carved up, so that particular attitudes might have a stronger political resonance in parliamentary terms than mm. they might just in a, a broad survey. Mm. But the point I guess I'm making, and th look, this is a flimsy pretext on which to ask it, but I'm, it's just illustrative. Mm. He saw what was probably true that others weren't seeing. And I wonder how easy it is mm. for us to end up in that trap where we say, oh, obviously this is not what the people want. You know what? You make a good point. If everyone was so upset, why do they keep voting for the same idiots? Yeah. When, I don't know people if they're say there's no choice, but when you go and look at a ballot paper, there's actually quite a lot of choice. Yeah. There are alternatives there. So what do you make then of the fact, uh, do we just lie to pollsters do, or do we lie to ourselves and then get in the ballot box and tell the truth? We may not even know what the parties stand for when we vote for them, except we know what Greens stand for because it says green on it. Yeah. Independent stands for independent, but th that doesn't mean anything. That could mean anything, yeah. But people don't necessarily, I mean it blows I mean, my Labor mind. I mean Labor says Labor. I mean, like, yeah. Liberal says liberal. Each one of them actually means something, but that doesn't mean well, when you And it vote. doesn't even stand for what those words mean either. Right. Okay. What Sorry. is it, Scott? Sorry, should I, should I give you time to take yeah. a Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do the housekeeping. Okay. Because yeah. you're not happy? No? All right. You're listening to The Minefield. If you've just joined us, Scott's grumpy. Um, <laughs> I'm Willie Darley. My co-host is Scott Steele. Oh, he's shaking his head too. This is fun. Um, and our guest today is Professor Lisa Hill, who is um, joining us at the Planet Talks part of the Woe Madelaide Festival. See, we usually do this from different studios, so he can't see how grumpy I'm getting. <laughs> it's a lot more fun when I can. <laughs> We're still talking about politics not giving us what we want. Mm. I'm sorry, that, that's, so, that's so not the point here. Yeah. Because it's presuming <laughs> that politics ought to be serving a particular end and the people who are saying particular things ought to be willing to do what it takes to get that particular end. Mm. What competence do you need, should you have, in order to participate in a democracy? For a long time, that competence has been, been presumed to be a certain sort of rational level, the ability to weigh up, make intelligent, yeah, independent yeah. choices, not have parents mm. standing over you, whatever. I disagree. Mm. There are very, very specific virtues mm. that democratic citizens must have in order to be able to participate in a healthy democracy. Mm. You would want to say that the ability to look at the long term might actually be one of those, but I don't think it's a virtue. That's a capability. That's the ability to be imaginative, yeah, yeah. to be empathetic, <laughs> to extend the imagination, whatever. Mm. One of the big things is the ability to lose yeah. and not see it as the end of the world. Mm -hmm. That is a virtue. Mm -hmm. The ability to lose to one's enemies, but not to see one's enemies as being the end of everything that you love most. And those who are willing to lie for the sake of democracy, are lying because they think that the end that that lie serves is more important yeah. than the vice of the lie itself. I'm willing to say something that is an absolute bold-faced falsehood 
because what I'm trying to do is to protect the United States from those democratic bastards who are trying to bring the end of freedom or whatever it is. So I'm willing to lie in order to, mm -hmm. to get that. Mm -hmm. A democratic virtue is the ability to lose, to mobilize one's friends, to try to persuade people, and to do better next time. Mm. That's a virtue. Another virtue is to be able to see, I mean, this is what a great political theorist, Jürgen Habermas, calls the ability for reciprocal perspective taking. Mm. That is a tremendous capacity to say, this is what I want. You don't want this. I would like to know what is it that you see that I don't see. Mm. Reciprocal perspective taking is the ability to say, this group is in power for the next three years. What will that group being in power for the next three years, what light will that shed on the world that mm. I simply couldn't mm. see otherwise? What goods? Will that group being in power mm. illuminate that I simply couldn't see otherwise? These are all part of the learnings that take place within a healthy democratic culture that allow us to come to the point of elections, to participate in those elections well, mm. virtuously, with not just mealy-mouthed respect and civility, but with, with a genuine appreciation of the capacity of other people around me, not as enemies or impediments towards me and a, and a goal that I want, but as the very people who will help me realize the possibilities, the aspiration of a common world. If we think about those virtues mm. as being the sorts of things that need mm. to be cultivated, mm. who here thinks that children are not capable of picking up precisely those virtues? I don't. So if we kind of decouple, if you like, a little bit, children from voting, mm. just for a second. Mm. If we think about schooling as the beginning, not so much of voting, but of the cultivation of the virtues that they will need mm. to live in a healthy democracy where every election is not a zero-sum game, where arguments are not made up of friends and enemies, where if I lose, it's not the end of the world, but I need to mobilize the troops and simply do better next time, where compromise is not a vice, it's not a sin, it's something that actually helps realize the possibility of a common world. If these are the, if these are the virtues whose cultivation marks the beginning of schooling, my modest proposal is that <laughs> this is this your less sophisticated this is my shoehorn that's right <laughs> is that effectively the first four to six years of schooling are the equivalent of what happens during a confirmation class so the gap between children being baptized and children receiving first communion there's this long confirmation the process that takes place to equip them to get to the point where when they do take their first communion it means something. Their integration into that broader ecclesial body is meaningful. What I would suggest is that the first four to six years of schooling are spent genuine civics education, mm. inculcating and culturating the virtues that are necessary for a healthy democratic community to exist. And all of that education reaching its climax, reaching the point at which kids this is the year we vote. There's a telos to it. There's an end point. It's not just general civics education. There's a real goal, which is why then that taking that final step, joining together with a common standing before fellow human beings, you are answerable to me and I'm answerable to you. Mm. We are one another's teachers. We learn from one another in this. That then becomes a moment when so much of what afflicts and undermines the possibility of a healthy democracy, that's when we begin, I think, to leave that, to lose the worst aspects 
of our hyperpartisan divide and realize that the most important thing in any democracy is fundamentally cultivating the possibility of our common life. That's so, my proposal. Okay. So, Lisa, what, what I think might be inherent in what Scott's saying is that that's best inculcated at what you might call the pre-political age or something like that. So when, if you do it later, it's too late mm. for that kind of... It's um, the architecture yeah. within which political decision-making can drop. Right. Yeah, but the, uh, you're making out as though... Look, people don't, a lot of people don't like the fact that the Westminster tradition, uh, tradition is adversarial. It is. Sometimes an issue is... It's, it, it, it involves adversaries. Pro-divorce, no-fault divorce, uh, pro-choice, pro-same-sex marriage. Some are on one side, some are on the other. And no compromise. No compromise on this. Um, when a bill uh, in 2018 was debated in our parliament, our federal parliament, the Greens put it forward, Labor supported it, but they could not compromise. the Labor could not compromise on some of the conditions that the Greens wanted, and they were right not to. So. I don't think that this... I, I agree with a lot of what you said about learning about we're all in this together, learning how to cooperate, learning how to compromise, come to the middle ground, learn to, learning how to be good losers. But sometimes... Now, politics is a fight. It's a battle between two, two three sides. And there's, it's, no, it's no accident that... or it's still true to say that anger is the primary political emotion. It's not, anger's not considered to be a bad thing in political science. It's, it's a rage for justice. And sometimes you're raging for justice against a person that does not want you to get justice. But sometimes anger is not that. That's right. Sometimes yeah, anger... Sometimes it's just being an annoying... Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. and, and yeah. perhaps raging against justice or raging for your exactly. own interests or like there are... Uh, uh, I mean uh, anger in the classical sense, the thematic sense, yeah. But hang on, when anger is the resting pulse, mm. when fight and fight to the death and don't compromise mm. is our political default, and then compromise, mutual accommodation becomes the exception, that is a distortion of a political culture. Yeah, but I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I sometimes saying it's going to be But through this process of enculturation, of cultivation of democratic virtues, we reach the point where mm. seeing one another as co-participants in the creation mm. of a common mm. world, mm. that becomes our default. That mm. becomes our resting pulse. Of course there are going to be those moments mm. of to accommodate, to compromise on this moment would be unthinkable. So it I, would be a betrayal of the possibility yeah, of our common yeah. life. I, I really like where you're going. I just don't think there is any realistic possibility that that's what would happen. Even if we, say we expanded the franchise for mm. this purpose. Mm. I think what is far likely to happen is the deep politicization of primary school education as we already see, what, we have endless fights about the politicisation of our curricula, right? History mm. wars and mm. arguments about all kinds of things. And because, I think it's precisely because polit political parties and politically minded people think this is so important and such a potentially lucrative wellspring of voters, it's precisely for that reason that they want to get involved in schools <laughs> And they want to turn everything that happens in schools into a, um, a kind of political 
um, cabbage patch or something, where they can produce voters for their future. And you see this, I think, both sides of politics, right? You see the way that when conservatives have the levers of power, they will want to start saying, all right, let's get into the history curriculum, let's talk, let's insert some kind of more values-based talk or mm. a celebration of Western civilization. And you see how when progressives get the, their hands on the levers, suddenly everything within the school system becomes filtered through the prism of equality or some other kind of virtue mm. that is a virtue defined on the terms of the progressive. Mm. You're already seeing this. I just, as, as attractive as what you're saying is, Scott, mm. I can't see a world where we were, to, were we to expand the franchise in this way, where that doesn't just become visited upon our youngest. And the idea of the inculcation of these virtues, I'm not sure in the end would be durable enough. So you talk about these democratic virtues, but I know from my childhood education, we were inculcated with all kinds of civil or social virtues all the time. Learn to share, Timmy. Mm. Right? We were told this sort of thing all the time. You'd come to the teacher with a complaint about a fight that happened in the playground, and they, what would they do? They would impart, or at least they used to, I assume they still do, they would impart some kind of virtue that was socially constructive. What happens when we get a bit older? Those virtues seem to be scattered to the wind, at least to the extent that we can discernibly observe that greed is a real thing with a real presence in our society. Self-interest is a real thing over the interest of others. In other words, the fact that we might have an idea of inculcating certain virtues in young children that will then sound into their adulthood, the fact that we might have that idea doesn't seem to correlate at all with its achievement. And I think there is a real danger of the opposite. You know what you can do, though? You can do it at the other end. There have been experiments with it. You, you know, in the Westminster system, you have... It's a very adversarial system, and the, ergonomically, the parliament set out left, right, like this, OK? Mm. <clears throat> in some parliaments, they've mixed them up. <laughs> So they put people on opposite mm. sides next to each other. And this has given rise to more um, cross-party collaboration yeah. and cooperation. So you, you, can, you can instill those virtues. And, uh, but one of the best things you can do is to get people to vote. And I think that is one of the best ways um, to instill those virtues. Train them how to be a, a voting citizen. That's right. Because children actually learn by doing. They're, they're, they learn by doing. Yeah. And, and, uh, and one thing we do know is that from 13 years of age onwards, a young person knows how to cast a congruent vote. That means the vote is consistent with their expressed preferences. Mm. I like this policy, that policy, this policy, then, they, then you can vote. And they're just as good at doing that as somebody that's older. So I don't think it would be a, a, a bad idea uh, to lower the voting age and to get people to start thinking about politics I think you're right that we should prepare them. I guess what I, what I strongly object to is the characterization of this as virtues culted. I'm not talking about values education or teaching students to be good little people. I know you're not. There are very, very, very specific virtues that are peculiar to the moral conditions that we describe by the name democracy that are absolutely necessary mm. for participants to have. And by the time you get to citizenship ceremonies or by the time you get to universities, it's too late because all sorts of forms of political conviction forming mm. and quite frankly, uh, belligerence itself as a virtue, being really opinionated as if being opinionated was a moral thing to do, which it's not. Um, I'm talking about something very, very specific and, and the idea that we couldn't develop 
a civics common curriculum mm. that was not partisan is unthinkable. The idea that we sorry, couldn't sorry. have children... The idea that we couldn't is unthinkable. That, 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 sorry, the yeah, idea we that we could develop... What did I say? You said a the idea that we... civics common curriculum that wasn't bipartisan is unthinkable to me. It would not have to be partisan. But it don't you think it's exactly what would happen? No. I don't think it would. No, we really? would have children in grade two across the country learning how to spell Aristotle by their second year of school. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> or, no. And we have finally uncovered the true motivation. <laughs> right. no, but let me tell you something about this democracy and virtue. We have really high and socially even turnout. Yeah. Most places are voluntary, it's have low turnout, that's socially uneven, and it's only the well-off uh, white people, the people with houses, long-term citizens, English speakers, and that's I think they vote. Here, more or less everybody votes. One thing that Australians value Australians evince more than anyone anywhere is you should obey the law, which blows my mind because yeah. I always think Australians are so naughty. Mm. They also say more than anyone else, you should vote. Mm. Everyone should vote. Ridiculous to think you shouldn't vote. And the third one is that they say more than anyone else is you should pay your taxes, you know. Mm. We've all got to pay. We've all got to pitch in. So even by... I think it's compulsory voting and the fact that we're all in this together. I think with the laws, it's because everybody's voted for the representatives that made the laws. Yeah. People actually feel more invested in them. It's true. Yeah. And now I'm not necessarily... We're rule followers. I mean, the yeah, experience of the followers. last two yeah. years has shown we are rule followers. Yeah, you tell are. us what to do. We yes, do. please. It's extraordinary. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's not always a good thing. Well, it was a good thing during COVID, It was wasn't a good thing it? during COVID, yeah. 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 But it's because we're, there are high levels of trust, mm. and the high levels of trust are related to the fact that we always know that our consent is going to be revo is revoked right. and revocable. That's we all right. know that we will all come together, having judged you, and revoke that consent. So, see, I, I have a different account as to why we're like yeah, that, yeah. which might be a different show. Yeah. So I'll just state it really quickly, yeah. and that is that unlike, say, the United States, which was a, a nation that was built with the idea of fleeing government. Yeah. getting out of the clutches yeah. of government. Yeah, yeah. Or the United Kingdom, which was a nation that kind of evolved out of what Edmund Burke called those little platoons of society. And so government was a sort of like an outgrowth of civil society. Yeah. We were, in at least our white settlement, we, we were a country created by government. The governors exactly. were literally on the ships. They arrived. They were in charge at the moment. There mm. was no city here. We're going to build a city. The government's in charge of building it. And like Melbourne, I think, is a rare example of a city that was set, like, where the government was chosen from free settlers, but actually mm. the governors were chosen before. Yeah. Yeah. So, so government's just at the heart of the Australian project. That's just the, to the extent it's a project at all. Actually, it's probably yeah. not a yeah. project. It's, Australia, as the modern settler state, does not exist without it. So we can't imagine that. Right. And, yeah, and so, it's and not, we, we're not frightened. We've always thought of the state as the thing that we get stuff from. Yes. You're supposed to do stuff for us. We're not afraid of our state. No. And that, I, you're, I think you're exactly right. We're not afraid of our state. That's why we don't have, one of the reasons why we don't have a Bill of Rights. We've thought, well, we're not that afraid of you. Mm. Second, we've had compulsory voting from very early on. And so we've allowed voting to be the way we got our rights. Yes. R and, rather than a Bill of Rights. And I do think a lot of Runciman's argument, to come back to tie yeah. this up, a lot of Runciman's argument has its greatest force in voluntary voting That's systems. Right. There's no question exactly. about right. that. Um, yeah. I don't know where we ended up on that. I, I broadly summarised where we ended up last time. The next time we do this topic, I will have no idea. But it's... Um, <laughs> Lisa, thanks so much for dropping by. My pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
That is Lisa Hill, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Adelaide. Our guest for this week's live edition of The Minefield, unless you're listening on the radio, in which case it's very much not live. It's several weeks old, but hopefully just as good. Uh, we're now at an end. Thank you very much for coming along, Scott. Yay. Thank you. We'll see you next week. <laughs> So thanks so much. That's kind of officially the end. Thanks for joining us for this live recording. Thanks especially to the Australia Institute for sponsoring today's entire program <laughs> of Planet Talks. That's the last Planet Talks program uh, session for today. But be sure to come back tomorrow at 1 p.m. for the next talk, which is Bug Life. Yes, bugs. <laughs> How insects rule our world. Thanks very much, everyone. We'll see you again. Bye. They really should have done a show about insects and democracy.